0: It was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode number 12. Welcome to a pretty bare bones. It was almost real. The pro wrestling history podcast Uh, episode 12 is going to be a solo episode. I'm sure as you can hear in my voice. I contracted a pretty serious cold for one of my grandkids this week. So I'll let Caleb off for this week and I'm just going to do the solo episode because I promised to talk about the little demon Joe Acton and I didn't want to miss the episode but bear with me. I'll do the best I can. I've drunk some hot tea with honey, and blown my nose about five or six times, so I'm hoping to make it through this podcast without too many sound distortions. We're not going to do a review this week, and the update is I got the book back much sooner than I thought I would, so shooting or working, the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship is up on Amazon, but I'm sort of in a soft launch right now for the next few weeks. Um, emails and all that won't come out about the book until, the uh, probably second week in November, but it is available on Amazon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes at com slash episode 12 for this week's show notes, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the updates either because I want to save my voice for the main contact content of the podcast. And I selected the little demon Joe Acton for two reasons, the first reason was he was one of the first recognized American heavyweight wrestling champions. Even though that he was billed as the world champion, the American champion, various different forms of being the champion. So it wasn't really clear... When he was the champion for six years. If he was the American champion. If he was claiming the world championship. But at the time. Acton was probably the most talented catch wrestler. In the United States. When he came over. In 1882. And he wrestled. Edwin Bibby for. At the time they were billing it for the world title. They claimed that. Acton was the English champion, Bibby was the American champion, and when they wrestled in front of 300 fans in Madison Square Garden, it was supposed to be for the world title. Now history recognizes it more as an American heavyweight wrestling title, and I talk about that quite a bit in the new book, so I won't chew my food, you know, five or six times on the same podcast. Just suffice to say that history now recognizes Acton as the American heavyweight uh wrestling champion, but he was a pretty inactive champion, and there was a couple reasons for that. So I just mentioned that he wrestled Edwin Bibby in eighteen eighty two in New York in front of three hundred fans at Madison Square Garden. And it was one of the bigger baths that the backers for this event took in that early pro wrestling period in the United States. Professional wrestling in the legitimate era, or mostly legitimate era, was not a popular spectator sport. A thousand to fifteen hundred fans was a great crowd back then. Most of the time, you were drawing people in the hundreds, not the thousands. It wasn't until Frank Gotch came along that you could, well, that's not true. Evan Strangler Lewis routinely drew two or three thousand fans in Chicago. But the ability to draw thousands like that was rare until gotcha's time. And then after gotcha's time, many of the top wrestlers would draw people in the tens of thousands. But as I've said in the past, when you have a lot of legitimate contests, those legitimate contests can be long, boring, and inconclusive. So not a lot of fans wanted to come out and watch people wrestle for seven hours to a draw. Some of the work matches went long because they were working the gamb- the the, work and the gambling. They were trying to get more money out of the spectators. But a lot of the legitimate contests would go on for hours before somebody would finally score a pin. Or they would just declare it a draw. <clears throat> so, being that it was not as popular of a spectator sport... It was hard for the pro wrestlers to make a living at wrestling. And compounding the fact in the 1880s, catch wrestling would become the dominant style in America in the 1890s. But at the 1880s, you still have a cornucopia of styles. You have side hold, back hold, uh, collar and elbow, Cornish wrestling, Cumberland wrestling, which were all kind of like judo with some jackets or sweaters. Catch And then the dominant style in the 1880s, I would say, is probably Greco-Roman, even though there were so many styles, because William Muldoon held the recognized world championship, and he only defended that in Greco-Roman wrestling rules. That's why the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship became so important, because it was the first kind of catch wrestling championship in America. And that was also important for the second reason, which I'll get to in a minute, but I want to continue on with the first reason, and that's the relative inactivity because of a lack of opportunities for uh, financial remuneration. So after the disappointing match with Bibby, they want to draw a big crowd, so they put acted in the ring with Clarence Whistler, who was very well-known by the wrestling fans because he had given William Muldoon his toughest matches in Greco-Roman wrestling. Whistler not being a catch wrestling specialist and knowing how dangerous acting could be, almost all of the other styles of wrestling other than catch-as-catch-can did not employ submission holds. So most of the wrestlers that were skilled in these other styles of wrestling were not familiar with submissions or what, in wrestling, they would call hooks. And these wrestlers in the other styles were aware that the catch wrestlers could hurt them, so they would wrestle extremely defensively and be very wary. And Whistler took it to the nth degree in this match in uh, New York in late 1882. Every time he started to tie up with Joe Acton, he would flop to the mat and just go on all fours and stay in a defensive posture and Acton would try to move him would try to put a hook but he, he just he was basically shelled up like a turtle and he couldn't move him. And this goes on for an hour and a half. Well, the referee wants to end the match because he can see this is going nowhere. Every time he stands him back up, <clears throat> it takes just a few seconds, and Whistler drops to all fours again, and Acton starts backpacking him and trying to turn him or put a submission on but of course, it's, there's no real opening. And Whistler was also very strong. He wasn't a particularly big wrestler at 5'10", 165, but he was powerful, and He was one of the few wrestlers who could match Muldoon, who was six foot one or two and about 220 in the power department. So he can't, Acton can't do anything with Whistler in this defensive position. But the referee stands up to, you know, call it a draw and the fans start booing. Well, he's afraid (coughs) they're going to riot because they're already mad about how this match is taking place. (coughs) They paid good money. To, I don't think don't think this one was at Madison Square Garden. I think they used a different venue, but wherever the venue was, they paid good money to get in here to see a guy flop on the floor on all fours and the other guy just push on him. So he lets it go for about another half hour, 45 minutes, and finally he decides, I've had enough. This is it. I'm ending the match. He calls it a draw. He immediately dives out of the ring and heads to the back. And the police have to come and get Acton and Whistler out of the ring because the fans are at riot conditions now. They're so furious over this. And, of course, the newspapers talked about how bad the match was and everything. So Whistler's embarrassed by what the newspapers say about him. And he decides to challenge Acton for a rematch, which never happens, because how are you going to get fans to ever come out and pay money to see the two of these guys wrestle again. Even if Whistler was willing to engage now, what fan would trust that after the display they just watched for a a couple of hours? So that match never materialized. And in general, Acton had a very hard time finding opponents because no one was as skilled in catch wrestling as he was. So if they wrestled him in catch wrestling, which is normally what he wanted to defend his title in, they knew there was such a great chance for injury, they didn't really want to wrestle with him. And then if, like, William Muldoon never wrestled Acton because Muldoon would never agree to wrestle one catch fall with him. Even if Acton agreed to, okay, we'll do one fall catch wrestling and Muldoon can have two Greco-Roman falls, that would favor Muldoon winning the match. But what Muldoon was scared of, Is that During that catch wrestling fall, Acton would catch him with a hook and hurt him, and then he would have to forfeit the third fall, and Acton would win the world title by injuring him and forcing him to forfeit. So he continued to say the only way he would defend the world title was through Greco-Roman rules, and he and Acton never had a a match between the two of them. Evan Strangler-Lewis, who would agree to only wrestle Greco-Roman wrestling rules with Muldoon, had several. Uh, Championship matches with Muldoon, but of course, in Greco Roman Muldoon's specialty, he was pretty much unbeatable. Um, People could give him a hard time, and like Whistler could wrestle him to a draw, but very few people stood a real chance of actually beating him. So, since Acton couldn't secure a match with Muldoon, fans had already seen him wrestle Bibby. The only person, and he didn't emerge till after. Acton had been the recognized champion for three or four years was Evan Strangler-Lewis. And Evan Strangler-Lewis was... Okay, let me go back before we get to Evan Strangler-Lewis. So probably for the first three or four years that Acton was the recognized champion, he would probably have three to four matches a year with people that were really not well-known. They, they were not championship caliber. They weren't on Acton's level. The only people that might have been on Acton's level was Bibby, who he always beat, Muldoon, who wouldn't wrestle him any style other than Greco-Roman, Whistler, who would just flop on the ground defensively in the only match they ever had, and then Evan Strangler-Lewis, who was also a dangerous hooker and was on Acton's level and was bigger than Acton. So to supplement his income, because he is, Acton is managed by Arthur Chambers, who is a former boxing champion, and he's based out of Philadelphia. So Acton is also based out of Philadelphia. And while they try to arrange a match with Lewis, which took a couple years, Lewis emerges in 1885 as this catch wrestling phenom. And when I say catch wrestling, that's the terminology used today. Catch is catch can is what they called it. Back in those days He emerges in 1885 As sort of this catch wrestling phenom But they don't wrestle for another two years And while Acton is very inactive During this period He is supplementing his income Chambers and he are supplementing their income By holding Foot races And dog races And horse races At a place called Pastime Park in Philadelphia Chambers was from Philadelphia acting because Chambers is his manager bases himself out of Philadelphia, and that's where he would stay for the rest of his career. And they supplemented their income by gambling on foot races, dog races, horse races. They were actually charged with running a gambling ring on these foot races and horse races and dog races, but they ended up dropping the prosecution because they didn't think the state law banned betting on foot races between, with, with humans, and they hadn't charged them for the dog racing or the horse And I think the it was mostly dog racing and people, foot races, people run, running. And I think Acton took part in the foot races as well. But that's how they made the majority of their money, was these foot races and dog races out of this pastime park, and then two or three, four times a year, Acton would wrestle. A couple times he managed to get a couple big-name European wrestlers to agree to wrestle him, but a lot of them no-showed. Uh, one time they no-showed with no notice, and there was like a thousand people at Pastime Park to see this wrestling match that didn't happen. To make it up to the fans the next day, they had Joe's brother Matt wrestle a local wrestler, and they had some horse races, because, it, but because it was pro-wrestling, People accused Chambers and acted of not really having this wrestler secured. They just wanted to lure people to the park to watch foot races and dog races. I don't actually think that happened because the next day when they had Matt Russell, they had half the crowd they had the day before. <coughs> and they had telegrams that they produced. And the wrestler admitted it to a newspaper reporter because he was in New York. He was supposed to go to Philadelphia, but he got sick. Ask him to postpone it. They agreed. Then they he wired back and said, "Oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling better. I can make the original date." But then he no showed the original date, and he left the country like four or five weeks later. But he had even admitted in the newspaper. So I, I, it would have been dumb for them to do that in Philadelphia if they had done it in Baltimore or Boston, a place they weren't at all the time. Ticking that crowd off if they're not going to come back wouldn't be, you know, business suicide. But to do that in their own hometown, where they were so tied in with the local businesses, that would have been suicidal. And I, I, don't, I don't believe either man was stupid. So I don't think that they did that on purpose. <coughs> Finally, in 1887, Acton, who is now... <coughs> Sorry, folks, I'm doing the best I can to get through this. Who is now in his mid-30s. And there's an age difference between Lewis and Acton, but it's not as pronounced as I originally thought it was. I think it's about five years or so. But for whatever reason, they had, well, I know one of the reasons, they were working a gambling scheme in the second match. They work a series of matches. The first match, Acton wins. The second match, Lewis wins. Pretty convincingly, it's a, it's a, three-out-of-five fall match, and Lewis wins it in three-out-of-four falls. But they were trying to, and takes the American Heavyweight Championship in that match, but both they worked both of those matches. And like I said, the second one was a gambling scheme, and they probably did the first one to set up, because that one was a three-out-of-five fall match that was split 3-2. Lewis won two, Acton won three, but it looked like Lewis was going to win that match. But Lewis, I'm sorry, Acton came back and beat Lewis pretty strong in that final fall. And they were trying to get the betting on Acton in the second match, and nobody was falling for it. Everybody believed Lewis was going to win the second match, which he did. But they worked those matches. Why anybody would be willing to work a match for their title in that era it's probably the same reasons they did later on. When the promoters started dominating the sport, then it, the promoters made those calls. But when you're an older wrestler, you're not making much money off the sport anyway. If you could make a couple big paydays with uh, Lewis, and you're getting ready to go into semi-retirement, dropping that is not that big a deal. So he drops the title to Lewis, and. Acton is pretty inactive for the for the rest of his wrestling career. He would wrestle occasionally, but he still... In fact, he would wrestle some boxers <coughs> in a wrestling match, professional boxers. Bob Fitzsimmons was one of them, but all of those matches that I, I looked up all appeared to be works. They, he was working with all of the boxers that he wrestled. Wikipedia, I think, has a misnomer in there because... Sorry, I was quick enough on the button that time. They have Acton wrestling a jiu-jitsu uh, fighter when he was in his uh, late 50s. And I don't think that's the same Joe Acton as the Joe Acton that beat Edwin Bibby and was the recognized champion from eighty-two to 87, 1882 to 1887. I think that it's either a wrestler who just took Joe Acton's name because that did happen. Occasionally wrestlers would take the name of wrestlers from previous generations that they admired, or it could have been his son. But when they, he wrestled both the jiu jujitsu uh, competitor, who the jujitsu competitor beat him, he was also wrestling a bunch of other local wrestlers in Washington at the time. And in none of this coverage, did they ever mention him, you know, the previous wrestling with Bibby and Lewis and all of that. In fact, in one article, I think they referred to him as a local wrestler. So I don't think it's the same Joe Acton, even though Wikipedia made that link. I don't think that it's the same person. I think the person in that jiu-jitsu match, because the coverage makes it seem like he was a younger guy, local wrestler. It could be his son. I don't have any evidence that his son took up wrestling, but it could have been. Or it could have been another pro wrestler that took his name because he really uh, respected Acton. But that Acton's career, and even Bibby's to a degree, these wrestlers did not wrestle that frequently. And part of it was because when you're wrestling legitimate contests... there's such a chance that you're going to get injured and you probably do get injured that you have to heal up. That's why MMA fighters and boxers fight three or four times a year unless they're in a lot of contests where they don't get injured. So they were more inactive anyway. And then the lack of lucrative opportunities also limited their wrestling. Lewis was a little more active, but... Not tremendously so. I would say that he had anywhere between 6 to 12 matches a year. But then he lost whole years from pneumonia. And other wrestlers like Tom Jenkins, Dan McLeod, Martin Farmer Burns, they all had about the same activity level. You're going to look at about 6 to 12 matches a year. It starts going up during the Frank Gotch era because... They're starting to work more matches. If you could take a lot of the chance of injury out of it, and people still got hurt, but if you could take more of the chance of injury out of it, you have a much better opportunity to wrestle more, and it was starting to get more lucrative. Although during gotcha's time, most pro wrestlers were part-time wrestlers, and they held some other... A lot of them were local businessmen. They might be a baker. They might be a barber. Uh, My great uncle was a semi pro wrestler in the early 1920s in Missouri, but he was a barber by trade and he wrestled a few matches here and there and he died very young. Um, so you won't find him in the internet movie, uh, not internet movie. Oh, I think it is affecting my brain a little bit. The (laughs) wrestling database you will not find, uh, William Zimmerman in there, but he wrestled a few matches in uh, Missouri in the early 20s as a, a local pro, but he was primarily a barber, and a lot of pro wrestlers did that. It was really, I would say, late teens, but much more so in the 20s, where the opportunities for making really good money started to, to come around and a lot of wrestlers just became pro wrestlers that was their profession but that's so in the 1880s and even 1890s and early 1900s so I think I covered his career about as uh in depth as we needed to go um there is a Significant section of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship book Dedicated to Acton And talks about his relative inactivity But it's also emblematic of that era as well So it wasn't just because he was lazy and didn't want to wrestle It was because sometimes there was a lack of opportunity And sometimes the, the lack of financial remuneration Forced him to have to go and seek other business ventures To make ends meet So that's it for this week. I'm not even going to do an outro. I'm just going to say we'll be back at the second Monday in November. There you'll get a full episode where we'll do an update. We're going to do a review. And we're going to talk about, I believe, Cora Livingston. We will talk about Cora Livingston within the next couple episodes. So I I always knew about Mildred Burke. I thought Mildred Burke was the first big woman wrestling star. But it was actually... Cora Livingston, and she's not as well known today because her career was pretty short. And she married Paul Bowser, who got his start. He was the long time he was a former pro wrestler and a long time promoter for Boston. Well, what I didn't know was that he first got his start in promotion as a wrestler and a promoter for his wife, Cora Livingston, who was the recognized women's wrestling champion from nineteen 19- I think it was 1905 or 1908 to about 1920. 1920, he becomes the main promoter for Boston, and she retires for the ring to help him. So she helped him with the business for as long. I I think she might have passed before Paul Bowser did. But, I mean, they were married until uh, death did them part. So if it's not Cora Livingston uh, next week, it'll be within the next week or two. And I'm probably going to uh, also talk about this. This is what may be the topic for the next episode. The last two legitimate contests Ed Strangler Lewis wrestled. And the last two he wrestled, um, one was against a good friend of his, um, Ed Steele. Not Ed Steele. What is wrong with you? <sighs> The other match was against Lee Wyckoff. That was his final shoot contest. Ray Steele. Goodness gracious. Forgive me, Mr. Steele. One of the biggest stars and legitimate tough guy shooters of the 1920s and 30s, Ray Steele, and had very strong St. Louis connections. Very good friend with Luthes, But his last two were with Ray Steele and then with Lee Wyckoff. And I did want to talk about Uh, both of those, um, because those were both the settle promotional battles. And with that, I'm going to end this episode. Thank you very much, and I apologize for the voice, and hope that you enjoyed it. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.